Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 this morning. And I direct your attention to chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, 29. Last Sunday, I gave a sermon entitled, Who is Jesus? And uh, I talked about how the Jesus is the divine one, that he is God in flesh. And he has come down from heaven to redeem. And this morning, I want to ask the question once again, who is Jesus? He is not only God in flesh, he is also the ultimate offering or the final offering for sin. And by the time we're done this morning, I want to be able to show you that Jesus is the only truly, eternally satisfactory offering for sins. And I want to do that so that both saint and sinner will know that Jesus is the Savior and that we'll leave here with a new love for Him, that the Son, a new appreciation for Him, and to know certainly that the only way you can be reconciled to God is through Jesus, through Jesus the Christ. Now, if you have your Bible, look at John 1, verse 29. It says, The next day, John, and John here is John the Baptist, John was the one who came before Christ. He's a a cousin to Jesus. He's the one who came preparing the way, telling people someone great is about to appear. And in verse 29, it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Look down at verse number 36. The next day John stands and two of his disciples, and he sees Jesus walking again, and he cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Why was he called that by Jesus? Why why was Jesus called the Lamb of God by John the Baptist? Why did he do that? To know the answer to that question, we have to go way back to the Old Testament. At the beginning of the Bible, When God made man, when he made this world, he made a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And he placed those two people in a garden. And in that place, he gave them a law. He gave them a rule. He placed them under a probationary covenant, you might say, where he said to them, you can enjoy everything here, but you can't enjoy this particular tree because in the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to die. They say that the Hebrew there can be rendered, you're going to be dying, dying, dying. You're going to die in your spirit. You're going to die in your body. And then you will face ultimately the final death, the second death, in the lake of fire. But Adam and Eve, living under that law, in perfect environment, they still sinned against God. They disobeyed God's law and became lawbreakers. They became criminals. They became hostile to God in that act. Of course, the penalty for that was death of the body and the soul and the death of their relationship with God. The the relationship that man has had with God ever since has never been the same. Hasn't been the same and won't be until we're with him in glory. After they sinned, they did what everybody does when they sin. They ran away. (laughs) They tried to cover it up. They went into the, into the trees and, and they tried to fix their own problem. They tried to fix their own sins. They, they sensed that they were naked. They knew they were naked before God. Hebrews 4.13 says that the God with whom we deal 
All things are naked and open before him. And they ran from him into the trees. And the Bible says they sewed themselves aprons of fig leaves and they thought they had satisfied themselves. They thought they had made a difference. They thought they had achieved it, I guess. But God, God knew what they had done. And he knew that they deserved to feel the full weight of his wrath. But God in his mercy and his free grace, he came to Adam and his wife. He sought them out. They were hiding from him. And still he sought them out. And he did it. Because even though they had brought judgment upon themselves, he still loved them. And he was going to save them. He came seeking for them. But their sin was real. Their sin was actual. They had actually heard God's voice. And they disobeyed God. They disobeyed God. I've often myself thought sometimes that it seemed like such a small disobedience. But in reality, it was a very big disobedience. A lot of things go into the disobedience of Eve. She saw the serpent. She saw the tree. She, she, I'm not going to get into that, but it, it's, a, it's a big deal what she did. She said, God is not worth, worthy of my submission. And she sinned against him. There's a real and actual sin. And the wrath of God that's going to come upon them was just. We all know the little maxim. If you do the crime, what happens? Do the time. We know that if you do something, you have to suffer the consequences of your actions. We're all familiar with those kinds of things. So because God's law must be honored. God's law must be honored. And because the penalty for their sin was just, there still had to be a death. If you eat of the tree of knowledge, God said, death. They ate of the tree of knowledge, so they died. And the only way they can be reconciled to God is if there is a death. There has to be a substitutionary death. Someone has to die in their place. God told them what they would face. In his judgment in Genesis chapter 3. But before God gives them the that long declaration of punishments that's going to be upon mankind as long as he lives on this earth, God promised to them that there would be someone who would come. This is Genesis 3.15. There would be a victor who would come, who would crush the serpent's head, but his heel would be bruised, but there would be a, a deliverer who's going to come in the future. God told them that. A victor who would destroy the works of Satan. And then something interesting takes place. God takes away their aprons of leaves and he makes for them skins. He makes them garments out of skins. He clothes them with skins. But where did the skins come from? Where did they come from? They were the skins of an animal. Most commentators and scholars say that it probably was a lamb or a sheep because that fits the ongoing typology. And these were the skins of an animal that had been offered by God to satisfy his own justice. Now, there's a, there's a bit of debate. Did, did these skins come from animals offered by Adam when God, as God prescribed? Or... Did God make the offering himself and then clothe them with the skins of that offering? Now, my own opinion is that this is an offering 
offered by God Himself. That God Himself, acting as the high priest for Adam and Eve, that He offered these sacrifices for their sins. And if that seems odd to you to think about that, I want you to remember that in the offering of Jesus Christ, it is exactly the same thing. Jesus Christ was delivered to the cross by the determinate counsel and will and provision and purpose of God Himself. So it's not strange to think about God offering a sacrifice to satisfy His self, His own justice, His own law. And the offering of Christ is the great offering, the final offering. Now what God began there in the Garden of Eden with the offering of those animals and clothing them in the skins, what God began there and continuing throughout the Old Testament era was a picture of what Jesus would be and do for sinners. You see, the slain, sacrificed, and offered Old Testament lambs were the real-life symbols of what Jesus would do as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this typology is so beautiful to think about. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, it probably seems a little bit weird. I was talking to a guy one time in Arkansas. He was a police officer. And he said, I've been reading the Bible, Terry. And he said, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That Old Testament sacrificial system. He said, I don't get it. He said, it sounds like some of the stuff we discover out here in the woods with, with these witches and warlocks out there, Satanists offering animals and sacrifices, seems occultic to me. I said, yeah, I can, I can see how it would. But remember, Satan always copies what God does. He always tries to copy. He always tries to put something in there to mess up God's plan, to mess up God's pictures. Well, back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter number 16, we read about a once-a-year sacrifice offered by the high priest. Now, what would happen is once a year, the high priest would make one offering per year for all of the people of Israel, a national offering for God's people. And the high priest would get two goats or two lambs. The first thing he did was he would go get a bullock and offer a bullock as a sacrifice for himself to make him worthy of offering this next sacrifice. He would sacrifice a bullock for his own sins. Then he would go down to the flock and he would choose two, the best, the, the best lambs they could find. He would take those two and he would, they would bring them in. And then he would cast lots. Now, for you or me, we might think of that as flipping a coin. Have you ever taken Siri and said, Siri, flip a coin? Ever done that? She will. And you'll be, she'll just say, heads or tails. And so, she, so he's casting lots to try to decide which of these two lambs is going to fulfill a certain role. They need, you needed two lambs because there's one lamb that's going to be killed and one lamb that's going to be sent away. A scapegoat and an offering. The priest would take these two goats. He would cast lots, and the one goat that was selected as the atoning goat, the one who would be slain, they would take that goat of atonement, that lamb of atonement, and they would kill it. And they would take the blood from that offering, and Aaron or the high priest, whomever it may be, would go inside the tabernacle and put it on the mercy seat, and that atoned for the sins of Israel for one year. For one year. But then there's the second goat. After the blood had been applied, the high priest would come out of the tabernacle and take that second goat. And you can read about this in Leviticus 16, verses 20 to 22. We'll take that second goat 
And the high priest would put his hands upon the head of that second goat, and he would confess over that goat all the sins of the people of Israel. All the sins. And then they would take that goat and carry it away. Because that goat had become the sin bearer, and the sins were being taken away from the people. Now that symbolically was showing what had happened. When Aaron went into the holy place and put blood on the mercy seat, the sins of Israel were taken away. They were taken away. But Israel needed a picture. Just like you and I need a picture sometimes. You ever read a book of instructions trying to figure something out? And you're looking... But, but have you ever wished you had a picture? <laughs> You can go online, a lot of times you're working on something, and you can get an exploded parts view. So you have like a motor, and it'll have an exploded view. It's blown apart, and all the parts are pulled out here, but there's little arrows that say where they would go. Maybe you buy some, a bookshelf or something at Walmart or some kind of a something, and you have a picture to look at, and you can follow along. You and I need a picture, and God gave Israel a picture because they had weak faith just like you and I have weak faith. They needed some kind of assurance. Now, they knew the blood had been taken in. They knew the blood had been put upon the mercy seat, but they didn't get to see it. It all took place behind closed doors. It all took place in secret. The only people that ever saw the blood get put upon the mercy seat was Aaron and God. Aaron and God. So they would come outside. So God, knowing the weakness of our flesh, knowing the frailty of our minds, he comes out and they take that second goat. And they would confess the sins of the people over it. And then to show them what God had done, that goat would be led away into the wilderness. By, and it says that they had to have a guy who was in good shape. A, good, a man in good shape. So he could, so could take that goat a long ways off. He would take that goat way far away. As a symbol, as a picture to show that when the blood was applied to the mercy seat, the sins had been taken away. What does John call Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God that does what? That takes away the sin of the world. This is the same thing. This is a picture of what Jesus has done. And here, Jesus is announced by John the Baptist as being the Lamb of God who takes away sin. There is no other way for your sins to be taken away from you than by Jesus Christ. No other person can do it. No other means is appointed for you to be reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes this as God acting as high priest, transmitting the sins of his people to Jesus. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is God's action. Jesus is the sin-bearing lamb. Jesus, the only innocent man, to ever live became sin so that sinners could be set free. Now, your sins are laid on Christ if you're a Christian. And that's the only way you can be a Christian is if your sins have been laid upon Christ and you're trusting in Christ. Now, where do you go from that kind of thinking? We've talked about something pretty amazing. Where do you go from there? Well, let's, let's talk about the lamb itself for a second. Let's talk about the lamb itself for a second. I wonder how many of you have feelings. Anybody here got feelings? We all got them. I mean, how do you feel about stuff? 
How do you feel about stuff? So we got time change Sunday coming up next Sunday. We're gonna go. We're gonna lose an hour of sleep. We're gonna plan to go to bed early, but we're not going to. <laughs> Something's gonna happen. We're gonna lose an hour of sleep, and we're not. We're not too keen about it, are we? Don't look really look forward to it. Tomorrow's Monday. Monday gonna go to work. Gonna go to school. You got stuff you got to deal with tomorrow, and you're not looking forward to it. You got feelings. You got doctor's appointments, and you got feelings about things. How did Jesus feel about being the Lamb of God? How did Jesus feel about becoming sin? How does an innocent man feel about dying for people who are not innocent? How did Jesus feel about being the Lamb of God who takes away sin? Well, first of all, it was no surprise to him. Some things surprise us, don't they? They just, boom, they're there, and you've got to deal with it. But it was no surprise to Jesus, because before the world was made, Remember this. This is important. Before the world was made, Jesus was already the one chosen to be the Lamb of God. Slain from the foundation of the world, the Bible says. It was no surprise to him. He was the chosen one. So it didn't catch him off guard. Secondly, Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2 says this. That he say, it, Paul says that we should be looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. That's who Jesus is. And then he tells us how Jesus felt about it. Listen to the reading. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, laid down his life at the cross. Jesus went forward with joy to the cross. With joy. With joy. How can he do it with joy? How can he look forward to becoming sin? How can he look forward to his own death? How can he look forward to it with joy? Because he knew what it was going to actually accomplish. He knew what it was going to accomplish. You don't know what your life is going to accomplish, do you? You don't, you don't know the sum total of it. Sometimes I think about my funeral. And I wonder, who's going to come to my funeral? And... I'm, I'm trying to live my life so that at least five people will show up. Lauren, Mitchell, Leslie, Lacey, Matt. And that's a thing to live for. Getting too emotional on myself here. But you don't know how your life is going to turn out. But Jesus comes knowing how his life is going to end and what his life is going to accomplish. It's going to accomplish the salvation of God's beloved people. Joy. He knows what he's going to do on that cross is going to bring his father joy. It's going to redeem sinners. It's going to be the great climax of these things. He's joyful about it. Joyful about it. How can he be joyful because it's the will of the Heavenly Father. And I hope and pray, as a Christian man myself, that that's how I feel about doing God's will. That whatever God's will is for my life, that I will fulfill it with joy. Was Jesus apprehensive about it? Can you be both joyful about something and apprehensive? <laughs> well, sure. There's going, you think about the first day of school. You're, you're happy, it's exciting, going to school. But what's it going to be like at school? You're going to have a nice teacher or a mean teacher? You're going to have 
bullies or friends. <laughs> is the food going to be good or is it going to be bad? When I went to kindergarten, it's the only time I ever went to a public school, but when I went to kindergarten, they, uh, we had snack time. We only went to kindergarten half a day when I, was, when I was little. We had snack time. And you got white milk and unsalted peanuts. <laughs> Why would you give kids unsalted peanuts? I'd never, that's a, they were like medicine. I would take them, they were slick, you know, and I would take them like a pill with a little sip of milk. <laughs> I couldn't stand those things. Apprehensive. Jesus is joyful about what he's going to do, but is he apprehensive about it? Yes, he is. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 44, we see Jesus is apprehensive about it. He, he asked the Father to release him from that. But his fear and dread are secondary in importance to his obedience to God. His obedience to God. Now, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did not demonstrate that they were really concerned about being obedient to God. How do we know that? They didn't obey God. But Jesus comes under the same penalty, death, for obeying. Adam and Eve faced death for not obeying. Jesus is going to die in obedience to God's will. His fear and dread were secondary in importance to his obedience to God. Now I'm going to ask you a question, Christian friend. How do you feel about obeying God? Is it important to you that you obey God? I hope we are that way. Well, the third thing here. In the Gospel of John, Jesus portrays himself. He talks about his own death in the Gospel of John. He, per, he portrays himself in two different ways. Two different ways. In John chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus describes himself as being a shepherd who lays down his life for the flock. He loves the flock. The flock has value to him. And he's willing to die to keep that flock safe and protected. So he presents himself in that light as laying down his life. For those whom he loves. And then in John chapter 15, Jesus describes himself as a friend laying down his life for the people that he loves. Now, the sum total of these things tells us that Jesus, he went forward willingly, lovingly, devotedly forward to die on the cross to pay for the sins of those who would believe in him. The Lamb of God came willingly to pay the price for all who believe. And all who believe in Jesus as their Savior will one day see this great Savior with their eyes. But only those who believe in the truth, only those who believe that His blood was shed for their sins. The Lamb of God, He went to Calvary and died. And then they took him to a tomb from the cross and they buried him. Now, just like that scapegoat. Remember the scapegoat? It was the sins were confessed upon it and then it was taken away out of sight. Right. Led way in the wilderness. The people, they didn't follow it. It was taken away from view. And Jesus himself, the sin bearing lamb slain on the cross. What did they do with that sin bearing body? He who had been made sin for us. What did they do with it? They took it out of sight and they buried it. 
put it in the ground. And there he lay. And on the third day, the Bible says, Jesus arose. Did he come out of there with the sins or were the sins left behind? Well, they had to be left behind. Because <laughs> no sinner goes to heaven. <laughs> no unrighteous person goes into God's presence. The sins had to be left behind. They're left behind. Where are they left behind at? People like to debate about it. I've heard all kinds of conversations about it. Where are they at? I don't know. But I know they're not upon anybody who has trusted in Jesus. And I know they're definitely not laying on Jesus' back. Because where did Jesus go? He comes out into the garden. And, he, and the women, they come to him. And he says, look, don't touch me right now. I have to go up. I got to go see God. Got to go to heaven. You see, he comes out clean. The sins were taken away. And he, and he lives in heaven now, ascended bodily up. After 40 days, Jesus is there in glory as the eternal testimony that the sins of all who believe have been taken away. It's very real. Very alive he is. Jesus is there in glory. He sits on the heavenly throne. The Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Remember John said he's the one who taketh away. He's the one who's going to take away. But now Jesus is the Lamb who has taken away the sin. And he sits on the throne in heaven. But what's next? Well, Jesus Jesus is going to leave that throne one day. He's going to come back to this world. He's going to come back as a conquering lamb. Revelation uses that that same language of lamb. But he's not going to come back as a lamb who's marked for death. He's going to come back as a lamb who is also a lion who is also a king, who is also a conqueror. He's going to come back and he's going to unleash judgment upon this world. Wrath. Revelation 6. Striking words. Let's turn there. We'll, We'll end, Lord willing, with this reading. It's Revelation 6. Revelation 6. In verse 1 of Revelation 6, it says that the Lamb opens the seals. And these, these judgments are horrible. But this is what he... he but when, in, in, the, in the end times, Jesus is not coming back to make peace with anybody. He's coming back to take over. Look at verse 15. Let's look at verse 14. And the heaven departed as a scroll and it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, when it says a scroll rolled together, this is when a, it's, it's closed. So if you look up at the sky, think of it as, as a scroll. When it's rolled together, it's rolled back. 
and you see up into the heavenly realm. The stars fall as a fig tree casteth their untimely figs in verse 13. In verse 14, the scrolls roll together and every mountain and island are moved out of their places. Do you know the last time this happened, that a big island has been moved? Remember that big tsunami that hit Japan? It moved the island of Japan like 10 meters, 40 feet. And that was a massive tsunami, a tidal wave. and caused that big nuclear reactor to burst open over there. Big, mega movement. Well, this says every mountain and island are moved out of their places. And how do the most powerful people on the earth feel about this? And the kings of the earth, and the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, and then everybody else, the bondmen, the free men. They hide themselves in dens and in rocks of the mountains and said said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come. And who shall able to stand in that day? Nobody's going to be able to stand. Nobody. He's going to come and destroy this world and destroy the sinners who are here. And the only reason you and I will not be destroyed is because we've trusted in Him. And when this takes place, we won't be here. He'll have already gathered His beloved precious people to the heavens, where we'll be with Him. And we'll have front row seats to His unleashing power upon this world. He's going to come back. He's going to come back and gather His people, take them to glory, Safe and secure in glorified bodies. What a day that'll be. And then the Lamb's going to pour out His wrath. And the question I want to leave you with is, is Jesus your Lamb personally? Have you trusted in Him as your Savior? Have you called upon Him? Have you believed in His gospel? Have you trusted in Him? If you have then you have nothing to fear when He comes. Nothing to fear when He comes. But if you have not trusted in Jesus, if you have not trusted in the gospel, you have a lot to be afraid of. You're headed for disaster, certain doom, certain damnation. But my friend, we are now in this time when the door of salvation is swung wide open. Come while you may. Believe on Christ. Enter into rest and be saved everlastingly. Well, let's stand together and we'll sing one, number one.